You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, guys, for leading us in worship, and uh, I'll add my welcome to Todd's and Today, I'm glad you're here, and if you're visiting with us, um, particularly glad you're here, and don't believe that you're here by accident in any way, and sure hope that as those uh, black notebooks go down the aisle, you'll, uh, you'll let us know that you're here. We'd love to just at least write you a note and say thanks for, for being here. If you've got your Bibles, um, go to Galatians chapter 2. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. I get to, I'm, I'm the guy who teaches here um, on the South Campus most every week. And so we've been looking at the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians in the New Testament. And we are going to finish up chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 15. And I'll tell you, um, and my wife can test, you know, attest to this, over the last couple of days, um, man, I have been skulking around the house. And this has been one of the hardest passages I have ever um, really trying to study. I mean, so Peter will write in 2 Peter chapter 3 that Paul writes some things that are very hard to understand, to which I have decided I am going to crochet that into a little deal and hang that on my office after this week. So there's, there's some aspects of this that are incredibly simple. Paul is going to make a really simple argument, and he's going to say some things in really complex ways that have driven me absolutely crazy. And, and so even last, you know, yesterday afternoon, I was walking around, I was like, I, I don't know, I don't think I'm going to have anything to say. It's maybe the shortest sermon I ever preached in my whole life. Which I think she probably was thinking, well, that might be great. And, um, <laughs> but anyways, uh, finally broke loose for me. And uh, to, uh, to kind of begin with, with where it is, I'll tell you an old story. It's an old story from the 1930s. And it um, was a woman touring in Europe. And she telegraphs her husband. She cables her husband through a telegraph service the following message. And the message said, Have found a wonderful bracelet. Price, $75,000. May I buy it? Her husband immediately responds with the message, No, comma, price too high. However, the telegraph operator missed one small detail in the transmission, the signal for the comma after the word no. So the wife in Europe received the reply, no price too high. So elated by the good news, she bought the bracelet, she turned to the U.S., showed her husband, her shocked husband, the bracelet, and uh, then he filed a lawsuit against the telegraph company and won. So from that point on, that's when the telegraph companies... Um, required the operators to spell out punctuation rather than use symbols. So like, no, stop, price too high. That's, that's where that came from. So Paul's letter to the Galatians, let me say it this way. His letter to the Galatians, this theme, justification by faith. It's not just the theme. It's the main point of the whole letter justification by faith means that we are declared righteous in God's eyes 
solely through faith in Jesus Christ. Period. Full stop. We're not justified by what we do, but by faith in what God has already done for us in the death of Jesus on the cross. That's Paul's whole point in these verses in Galatians 2, 15 through 21. At the, at the end of the day, that's all he's saying, okay? So, so if you miss it, and in my explanation of it, just know that's what he's saying. And he's doing this. I mean, so this is coming on the heels of, you remember, there's this argument, if you've been with us, Paul has confronted Peter. And so the, the, my working title of this is, is what was, it's not, but it, it was, Peter's a dirty rat and Jesus loves you. But, but Peter, you know what I mean? So he's come to Antioch and he, you know, he's separated from the Gentiles. Now Peter's a believer, he believes in Jesus and he loves Jesus. But he got there and he was afraid of the, of the Jewish people and he, was, and he was, he wasn't walking in line with the gospel and he was reverting back to his old ways of Judaism. And Paul is confronting him and he's saying, look, you can't go back to Judaism. You can't go back to the old ways. You can't Listen, when it gets hard, you can't go back and lean on the law to justify you. You've been saved. You've been justified by faith in Jesus. What are you looking to the law for? It can't do anything for you. In fact, if you go back to the law, if you go back to the law, then you're saying something about your faith in Jesus. That makes you, makes you a blasphemer. It's anathema. It's, you're dishonoring Jesus. You, you're changing the gospel when you do that, Peter. That's what he's saying. So look with me. We'll, we'll pick up. I'll, I'll explain to you best I can what, Peter, what Paul's doing in this. So in verse 15, he's still talking to Peter. In verse 15, he says, We ourselves, Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So Paul, he's addressing their national status, their, their bloodline. Jews, they, they didn't first and foremost see themselves as sinners. Rather, they identified themselves as God's chosen people. They, they were born with privilege. It wasn't that they didn't think they had sin. They knew they had sin, but, but as they saw themselves, they were inside the covenant people. They had a privilege, and Gentiles, they were outside of the covenant people. From their perspective, they were outside of the privilege. They were outside of God's chosen. They were sinners. We were privileged. And in 16, he says, yet we know that a person, particularly a person, a works of the law person, a person born in privilege with the, with, with the covenant, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Yet, he says, listen, the status, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't change the simple fact, Peter, that no one's justified by works of the law. No one's ever been justified by works of the law. Peter, look, the whole Old Testament, if it did anything, it proved that there was nothing wrong with the law. Listen, the law is holy. It's good. Nothing wrong with the law. The problem was with humanity. We couldn't do it. 
and instead of justify us, all the law ever did was condemn us. The law was perfect, but we never kept it perfect. That's why we needed all the sacrifices. That's why we slaughtered generations of animals. Because we needed the blood to be acceptable. The blood of another. The sacrifice of another. And the sacrifice, Peter, we made the sacrifice in faith. The sacrifice wasn't a work. It was a humble offering. Don't you remember? It was, it was this atonement that we offered in faith. And then God, he received it as a pleasing aroma. It was, a, a, it was faith in God's provision. Listen, Old Testament salvation was by grace through faith in God's provision. And God was looking forward to the fulfillment in his son Jesus. By grace, through faith in Jesus And Paul here, if you make notes in your Bible, you could write to here in, in verse 16. This is the first time Paul's ever going to use the word justified or justification. And he's going to love it because he's going to use it three times here in verse 16. Five times before he gets to the end of this chapter. If you have the ESV in verse 21, it's going to appear as righteousness. It's the same word. You justify someone when you declare them not guilty, innocent, righteous in the eyes of the law. It doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean that you make them righteous. You haven't made them anything. You declare them righteous. It means you look at somebody who's guilty and you declare that they're now not guilty. They're innocent, they're righteous, they can go free. The, the record's been wiped away. The technical definition is this. Justification is that divine miracle whereby God declares righteous the sinner who believes in Jesus. I know it's mind-boggling, isn't it? He takes the sinner who's as guilty as sin and says, righteous. He declares you righteous. He even says, listen, what's true about Jesus is true about you. He counts and credits what Jesus is to you. You're guilty of sin. A sinner declared righteous. The guilt of sin, listen, the guilt of sin doesn't vanish. It doesn't disappear. It's not swept under the rug. It's transferred to another's account. And then the account's paid in full. It gets transferred to Jesus. So to be clear, salvation is not a restructured payment plan. It's not a renegotiated, managed sum um, with low interest and, and manageable payments. It's, it's not like tax relief. Like you owe the IRS a big sum. They come in. You can't pay the sum. Jesus comes in and dies to lower the sum to a figure that you can manage and pay. It's not debt relief. It's, it's completely transferred wiped clean from your account and put on another's account. One, one uh, Albert Barnes, he, he describes it this way. It's the declared purpose of God to regard and treat those sinners who believe in Jesus Christ as if they'd not sinned on the grounds of the merits, work, and perfection of Jesus. It's not a mere pardon. Pardon is free forgiveness of past offenses. 
It has the reference to those sins as forgiveness and blotted out. But it's more than that. Justification has respect to the law as to God's future dealings with the sinner. It's an act by which God determines to treat him hereafter as righteous, as if he'd not sinned. The basis is, uh, for this is the merit, the work, the perfection of Jesus. The merit, the work, perfection that we can plead as if it were our own. He's taken our place. He's died in our stead. He has met the descending stroke of justice, which would have fallen on our own heads if he hadn't taken our place. Listen, salvation, justification, it's not a loan that we're paying back. We don't even end up in debt to Christ. Paul will say in Romans, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The law is holy. But it could only condemn us. That's all it ever did. It could never justify us, never make us right, only diagnose that we were wrong. Jesus was right. He was righteous, and God the Father took the judgment against us and counted it against Jesus in full. God credited then Jesus' rightness to us. It's the great exchange. Now, you may be wondering, well, why is he going on and on and on and on about justified? And I'm not even finished. You know Why? Paul uses it three times in this verse. I mean, he wants us to get this. I mean, this is the central truth of Christianity. If you don't understand that we are justified by faith in Jesus alone, you don't get it. You, there's then there's no Christianity. Justified. One more point. Sometimes we hear it defined as just as if I'd never sinned. And that's right. I mean, then that's a good start, but it's not enough because there's even more than that. So that's the negative side. That's the forgiveness. But there's also a positive side. There's a declared Righteousness. You might say it this way, just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I'd always done right. That's what's being declared about us. And we're not made righteous. We are declared that. The becoming righteous, the the process of, of growing into our justification, that's sanctification. Paul will get to that later. Now he says here we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification, it can't be earned. It can only be received. The way the reformers used to talk about it is that faith is the hand that receives justification. Faith 
This faith is a gift. It must be careful not to think about faith as the work we do. I mean, so, so Jesus has done everything, and then faith is the thing we do. It's not that. Faith is not the thing we do. It's not the work we do. It's not the one thing we do. The one thing we do, we've already done. We have, we have completely walked in our sin nature. We have proven correct the condemnation of guilty against us. That's what we have done. We have proven right the verdict of the law against us. Faith, rather, is, is, the, is the receiving of justification. But passive, that's not the best way to describe faith either. Receptive, that's the better word. Uh, uh, one illustration may be this. Um, like, like a tree accepts water and minerals from the soil, like light from the sun. So it is with faith. It's, it's receptive, but it's not passive. It's, it's active indeed. Martin Luther says here, the law says do this, and it's never done. Grace says, believe this, and everything is already done. That's justification. The three important realities to remember here, and then I want us to move to this next verse, but justification is a divine miracle of God. It's not something you work up to. If you're justified, it's because God has done something. He has accomplished something. He has declared something about you. Secondly, justification isn't an experience. It's, it's not an emotion. It doesn't matter if you feel justified or not. Justification happens to the believer at the moment that you trust Jesus, there's no such thing as somebody who's partly justified or halfway justified or on the way to being justified. There's no more, somebody's no more justified than somebody else. Justification happens to every believer at the moment of salvation completely. And thirdly, justification means that your salvation is eternally secure because it didn't rest on you you didn't do anything to accomplish it or secure it. You can't do anything to lose it. It is something wholly done by God through the work of Christ, secured by Him. You didn't earn it. You didn't secure it. You cannot lose it. Justification means your salvation is eternally Secure. Now go to verse 17, and here's where it gets a little bit tricky, all right? So, oh, Paul, here's what he says. But if I, Peter, he's talking to Peter here, but if I in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Clears the bell, right? We just move on. Wait a minute, what's he saying? If our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, 
Is Christ then a servant of sin? All right, so here's what he's saying. We call the Gentiles sinners. Truth is, we're also sinners, Jewish sinners. And so Peter, to claim Jewishness or circumcision or the law or to claim any of that makes us more beholden to God or gives us more status with God or more favor with God than, than what Jesus did in his death. That sits below those things. Peter, by trusting Christ, we set aside the law. We set aside circumcision. We set aside the regulations about clean and unclean and what's, and what's common and who we can eat with and all those things because they don't justify us. They don't make us right with God. And I know, listen, Peter, by setting those things aside, we have Jewish kinsmen that look at us now and they say to us, listen, those guys are sinners. They eat with sinners now. They're not keeping the cleanliness codes because we're trusting in Christ to be justified, trusting in Christ to be right with God, not ourselves, not our performance with the law. In other words, if the Judaizers are correct in saying that we, in seeking to be justified solely in Christ, are neglecting the law, and that turns out to be that we are sinners just like the Gentiles, then would you say that Christ is teaching us to be sinners? And Paul says, heavens, no. It's no sin to be free from the hopeless self-attempts at salvation. It's no sin to be freed from the ceremonial laws that demand that you keep everybody at arm's length and yet you... And instead, you get to turn around and embrace Gentile brothers with love and honor and dignity. There's no sin in that, Peter. And don't you say there is. That's what he's saying to him. Besides all that, Peter, we're sinners anyway. We didn't need anybody to tell us that. We're sinners all by ourselves. The law didn't keep us from sin. It didn't fix our sin problem. It only diagnosed our sin problem. In fact, Peter, it aggravated our sin problem. It only made our sin worse. That's why he says in verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. We can't go back to that. The law was meant to prepare us for Jesus. Jesus has come. He's fulfilled all that. We can't go back to it now. Only Jesus can provide. Only Jesus can give. Only Jesus can accomplish. Can't go backwards, Peter. If we do, we, we prove really how silly that is. We, we transgress what that was meant for in the first place. It was meant to lead us to Jesus. Nothing else. Then in verse 19, here we go. He says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. The law demands death for those who break it. So the vicarious death of Jesus on our behalf comes through the law. So now think about this. Peter's going to say, through the law, 
I died to the law. So think about it with me. Through the law, I died to the law. Well, I'm going to say it one more time. Just make sure everybody's with me, right? Through the law, I died to the law. Here's what I want to, I want to talk about that for a minute, because here's what I think he means. First thing I'd say about it is that in Hebrews 7, or Romans 7, here's what he's going to say. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Hebrew, uh, Romans 7, 12. And we know it because it comes from God. It could be nothing other than holy, righteous, and good. The, the law is. The problem was never God's law. The problem was humanity because we're not holy, righteous, and good. And then in Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13, it says this most interesting thing. I can't, I can't even believe it says this in Romans, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. It says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creatures hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Oh, amazing. The word of God is living and active. And the word of God comes in such a way that it that it divides me and it and it lays me bare, and it leaves me no place to hide. It's, it's, actually, it's actually quite terrifying, isn't it? The power of God's Word over me. If you've got your Bibles, I want to just show you something. Go to, go to 2 Corinthians. It's one book back. So it's the, it's the letter just before Galatians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So it's, it's called an excursion. Take one second, and then we'll come back here and we'll finish up. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to show you something. What I think Paul means by I died through the law to the law. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 4. He's, he's talking to the Corinthians. He's telling them about his ministry to them. What God has been doing among them. It's been pretty miraculous. And in verse 4, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, I wonder what he means there. 
Well, let's keep reading. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, this is the case. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. What's he talking about? He's talking about the law. And he's talking about the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant. The letter kills. The Spirit gives life. I died through the law to the law. The letter kills. The Spirit gives the Word of God. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged. It's a word. You know what happens in Exodus chapter 32 at the giving of the law? Moses comes down from Mount Sinai after God gives him the law on the tablets. You know what he comes down to on Mount Sinai? A party from the Israelites waiting patiently for him to return, right? No, actually just the opposite. Um, they had been making a golden calf, worshiping it, calling it their God, and saying that golden calf had brought them out of Israel, out of Egypt. You know what the commandment says? You shall have no other God before me. Moses comes off Mount Sinai with the law of God to the golden calf. 3,000 people die with the coming of the law. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 28, the first thing the law does. The letter kills. If we were to turn over to Acts chapter 2, Peter will preach the very first Christian sermon. He will announce very first the proclamation publicly of the, of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel. He will preach the very first gospel sermon and and. Jesus will be proclaimed, the gospel will be preached, and guess what the text records in Acts chapter 2, verse 41? 3,000 people are brought to new life in the coming of the Spirit. The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. I died through the law. To the law. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can. I'll, I'll read it. We'll come back. We'll finish up. It's a bonus. Romans chapter 7, 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, he says, 
For I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is not binding on a person, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman, is, he's going to give an illustration, for a married woman is bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. I died through the law to the law so that I might live to God. The law comes as it were a diagnostic, holy and righteous and blazing and glorious and unbending diagnosis to reveal my death, to declare my death, to tell the truth about my condition, to expose every cover-up, to bear all of my scandal. The law has me dead to rights, condemned and cursed and shamed. But then Paul says, I died to the law. So how does it happen? When the law has me dead to rights. But if I'm dead to the law, then the law doesn't have any power over me. And he's going to get to that in the next verse in its full force. But here, here's an illustration to let it sink in for a second, okay? Guy's on a murder trial. He's on the stand for murder. He's convicted for murder. He's sentenced to death. He's executed. Medical examiner confirms his death. Signs the death decree. Punishment administered. Penalty paid. Justice executed. The law is satisfied. He's dead for three days. He comes back to life. Resurrects from the dead. Walks out of the morgue. Finds some clothes laying around. He's arrested. He's brought back before the judge for the murder he committed. The judge declares that the law has done what it can do. He's already been punished. Justice has already been satisfied. There's no provision for resurrection, no provision for new life. Through the law, he died to the law. I died to the law through Christ. I've put the law behind me to walk ahead in Christ, the fulfiller of the law. I no longer live to fulfill the law. I live in fulfillment of the law, Christ. So to live in Christ is to live to God, death to the law, life in Christ to God. That's why he says in verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and yet and the life I live now, I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. So faith in Christ is identification with his crucifixion. I died with him. So the law doesn't condemn me anymore. I died to the law. 
And the gospel comes, the gospel speaks. It's like a sermon preached at my graveside, like Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth, rescued and saved and redeemed and brought forth to new life. Paul says, I was nailed to the cross with Jesus and I rose with him. And the gospel speaks, the, the power of, of the gospel spoken, Jesus crucified and buried and resurrected. I mean, listen, do you know the Bible? I mean, God's word doesn't just mean something. Listen, it means something. It doesn't just mean something. It does something. It's living and active. It brings dead men and women to life. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And every day that it would put us to death and bring us to life, breathe life into us. That's what he's talking about. This isn't some intellectual proposition. This is the Word of God. This is the living Christ doing something. Sorry. I don't feel well. And Paul and I have been at odds all weekend. Paul says, I was nailed to the cross with Jesus and I rose with him. We're born into Adam when we came into the world and we are born again into Christ, which means we have a new union. God attaches us to the events of Christ's life so that they become part of our lives. Martin Luther said in his commentary here, by faith you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person which cannot be separated but remains attached to him forever. His story, the story of the cross and the empty tomb becomes our story. We have a new identity. I no longer live. The life I live, I live by faith. Our new identity is Christ saturated. You are in Christ Jesus. We have a new freedom. Christ who lives in me. This is it's not like to live in debt to Christ. I am indwelt by Christ. It is not how do I pay it back. It is now life lived out of the wealth of the riches that are yours in Christ. It is to know now the want of nothing and the stewardship of everything in Christ. Have a new affection. He gave himself for me. He loved me. We needed to be loved. I needed to be loved. You needed to be loved in this sacrificial way 
to ever know peace with God. Story of a medieval monk who had announced to his parish that he was going to be preaching the next Sunday evening on the love of God. And the word got around and everybody shows up and the, as the shadows fell and the light ceased to come in through the cathedral windows, the congregation all gathered inside and, the, and in the darkness of the altar, the monk, he lit the candle and he carried it up to the crucifix, which would have been normal in that cathedral. And the first thing he did was he lit the crown of thorns. He illumined it. And then the next thing he did was he went and he illumined the wounds on his two hands and then the marks on the spear in his side. And a hush fell. And he blows out the candle. And he walks off the altar and doesn't say a word. The love of God in Christ. F.B. Meyer speaks about Christ's love like the Amazon River coming down to water one daisy, and you're that daisy. Listen, the love of God cannot be gauged, we have to know this, by what happens to us. The things that happen to us are not the evidence of God's love for us. The cross of Christ is the evidence of God's love. The love of God can't be affected by the things we do. Not our disobedience, not our obedience. And that's so unnatural for us because performance is the baseline for every other relationship that we have. But I'm telling you, based upon what Paul's writing here, you'll never be more loved, more actively, intimately, unconditionally, relentlessly pursued by anyone like you're pursued by your God. That's why he says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no reason. I mean, it's like being invited to dinner with the queen and showing up with chips and dip and saying, well, hey, listen, at least I brought something. Standing right before God is based upon the righteousness and the sacrifice of Christ. I'll end with this. A.W. Tozer, he says, I've heard that John 3.16 is a favorite preaching passage for young preachers, but I confess that as far as I can recall, I've never had the courage to preach and prepare a sermon with John 3.16 as my text. I suppose I've quoted it as many as 15,000 or 20,000 times in prayer and in testimony and writing and in preaching, but never as a sermon text. I think my own hesitation to preach from John 3.16 comes down to this. I appreciate it so profoundly that I'm frightened by it. I'm overwhelmed by John 3.16 to the point of inadequacy, almost of despair. Along with this is my knowledge that if a minister 
is to try to preach John 3.16. He must be endowed with great sympathy and a genuine love for God and man. So I approach it. I, I approach it as one who's filled with great fear and yet great fascination and longing. I take off my shoes, my, my heart shoes at least, as I come to this declaration that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Period. Full stop. You would, would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for the words that Paul has written. I pray for your Holy Spirit to make them clear to us. I pray the gospel would be clear. I pray your grace would be clear. I pray that the truth, that salvation, that justification, that being declared right comes by your grace through faith in your Son, Jesus, alone. Father, would you clear away all the other noise? Would you grant our hearts a longing to receive that? Father, would you grant hearts that have never received that a longing to receive that? And by faith, would they, would they grasp it? Father, for all of us, would you draw us to your son, Jesus? And in, in, in more and more clarity of your grace. That we might know with the height and depth and length and breadth of your love is. We ask this the only way we can in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.